was probably around the age of eight that I realized I loved chess. And then as I kind of moved past chess and was looking for other things, I thought, what in life is going to be like that, which is going to be hard, um, is going to take me a long time to resolve. And then at the end, if I, you know, in the game of chess, you either win or lose. And so you get that feeling of satisfaction at the end. But what's going to give me that feeling that I've accomplished something? G'day, and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love, and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting, and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. In 1980, the American physicist Paul Benioff described the first quantum mechanical model of a computer, showing that a computer could operate under the laws of quantum mechanics. To classical beings like us, quantum mechanics is mysterious stuff, characterized by terms like qubits, superpositions, and Grover's algorithm. One commentator says that if classical computing is like our left brain, quantum computing is like our right brain, uncertain, unstable, flowing, and creative. Yet its implication for our lives is significant. Quantum computing could break our current encryption tools and allow the simulation of incredibly complicated physical systems. Recently, Google claimed to have created a machine that achieved quantum supremacy. Michelle Simmons is at the heart of this research. Director of the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Quantum Computation and Communication Technology at the University of New South Wales, she was awarded the Australian of the Year in 2018 for her pathbreaking research. She's also a strong advocate of better scientific literacy among the general public and a role model to many young scientists. Michelle, Welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. So how did you get your start in science? As a, as a child, what turned you on to the world of science? Well, it's, I think it was really ironically chess. So when I was very young, I had a father who used to play chess with my brother a lot, and I w would watch that. And for you know probably a couple of years I would watch, but I never played. And then one day I challenged my father to a game, and he was really surprised that I wanted to play. So it was really actually chess, and it's an unusual entry to science. But I, you know, I look back, and I think that's really where I discovered I like doing things that were complicated, that take a lot of time to think about, um, where you know you literally could sit for hours with one thing and concentrate. And for me, I found that fascinating. And as I got older, so that was probably around the age of eight that I realized I loved chess. And then as I kind of moved past chess and was looking for other things, I thought, what in life is going to be like that, which is going to be hard, um, is going to take me a long time to resolve. And then at the end, if I, you know, in the game of chess, you either win or lose. And so you get that feeling of satisfaction at the end. But what's going to give me that feeling that I've accomplished something? And that's really probably where I got into science. At actually, the age of 13, I thought, I want to be a physicist. Chess is, uh, of course, famous because it, uh, backwards induction is so complicated. Do you think one day we'll have a quantum computer that can backward induct chess? Oh, I'm pretty sure, yes. I mean, if you look at um, you know, DeepMind and AlphaGo, there's a lot of stuff there where you're looking at artificial intelligence and learning how to uh, figure out how to beat uh, humans at certain games. And I think you know, chess is already in that category already, yeah. 
You, uh, you went to uh, Eltham Green Secondary College, a school so chaotic that it uh, inspired the John Cleese movie Clockwise. Um, what was it like to, uh, to, to be in uh, a fairly free-flowing school like that? <laughs> um, it, was, it was a pretty rough school, I have to be honest. And so it, I think at, a, at an early age I realised that um, learning was a privilege, actually, because at that school not many people wanted to learn. And so I remember going to classes and you know, being with the teachers. And actually, quite often, a lot of people wouldn't turn up to classes. So I'd be, you'd have quite a high ratio of uh, teachers to students. And so from that perspective, I, you know, I always wanted to learn. And the teachers were kind of very happy to have someone in the class that wanted to learn. So for me, it was a very positive experience. But it also kind of taught me resilience, you know, that life is what you make of it. Do, how did your, uh, your, your parents stimulate your, uh, your interest in, in science? Uh, your dad was a crime scene photo photographer, uh, not, not somebody who had a sort of laboratory background. What did they do when they saw your, uh, your, your interest in, in chess and in science? Oh, so I think my, it's best my father would probably have been the biggest influence. And he, he always said, you know, don't choose the things that are easy to do. You can always do those outside of school. Do something in your daily life where you're going to feel challenged. And so he said that at a quite early age, and I think that really stuck with me. You know, I, I loved um, biology at school. I loved English literature and history. And, you know, if, if you gave me free time at that time when I was in an early age, I probably would have been reading books and watching, you know, his, historical movies. Um, and then I realised, you know, if I wanted a career in writing or some, something similar to that, that it would be something I might enjoy. Um, but I can always do that outside. And so, whereas, you know, at an early age, I realised if I didn't take up the sciences and do them every day, then it's very hard to pick up outside. How's that affected the way in which you raise your three children? Uh, probably the same. I think most importantly, I want them to take responsibility for their lives. That would be the first thing I encourage them. But um, always to do things where they feel energised by it. Mm. I guess that's the key thing. So something that they can feel passionate about. And, you know, to be honest, they've chosen things that are completely different to things that I would have predicted for them. Um, so my, my oldest son, for example, actually both sons are like being in the Air Force cadets. So that wasn't, wasn't something I foresaw coming. They both adore music, which is great. And my middle son is very keen on setting up businesses. So he's a bit of an entrepreneur. This, that philosophy of uh, you're saying you're, you're, you're pursuing with your children sounds slightly different from the way in which you describe your father's philosophy with you. Right? Your approach seems more like the classical choose easy, work hard. Uh, his, his seems like uh, choose, choose hard. Oh, yeah, no, I think I encourage them to choose hard too. Okay. So definitely, yeah. yeah. And then you went on to study at uh, Durham University for your undergraduate and your PhD. What, uh, what drew you to Durham? Um, to be honest, it was the furthest place away from home. <laughs> so, so in the UK, you get um, you get scholarships to live away from home. So it's very different to Australia. And at that time, I literally wanted to go as far away as possible. And I, you know, I do remember when I was young, I had a, an uncle that lived in the US, and he took me to the US when I was quite young. And I remember thinking, gosh, there's a whole world that's completely different out there. And so I wanted to experience things that were different. And at, at that time, I have to be honest, in the UK, people didn't think about going overseas. So I just thought about going as far away from home as possible. And Durham is on the border with Scotland, so that's about as far as I could get. But um, also it offered a double degree, so a chemistry and physics degree. Um, and not many universities, only five at the, in the time in the UK offered five, a double degree. So that really kind of limited where I was going to go. What did you work on? Uh, so, so literally I learned 
quantum physics and quantum chemistry during my undergraduate. And it was then that I realized pretty quickly that I was more of a physicist than a chemist. Um, they taught, you know, it's exactly the same subject, but different notations and different ways of seeing the same area, uh, which I found completely fascinating. And, um, and I, you know, literally instinctively found the way that physicists describe quantum physics or quantum chemistry um, as the most appealing way to look at it. How do you characterize sort of the physicist's approach and the chemist's approach? Oh, that's a great question. So I think physicists like to make things as simple as possible, um, and chemists recognize that things are chaotic. And so for me, if you are trying to build something, you want to get down to the absolute essentials and understand them as deeply as you can. Um, whereas a lot of my chemistry friends, particularly in organic chemistry, would, would do kind of devices or chemical reactions where they knew that chaos was part of it and they would just try many, many different things like cooking and then eventually find one that would work, whereas I wanted to go down to first principles, how would it best work? You worked on uh, so, uh, solar cells. Uh, what, uh, what drew you into that area? Um, so I guess I really wanted to make things and so I very much felt that I wanted to combine my skills in chemistry and physics to actually produce something that hadn't been made before. I was interested in, you know, capturing sunlight um, and trying to turn it into energy. So I was, you know, a very passionate young uh, person who wanted to do good for the world. And at that time, we really were thinking about the fact that, you know, the, the light that comes from the sun comes from many different wavelengths. But all the commercial devices at the time only really captured the light of one particular wavelength. And so we were very excited about the idea of trying to capture in one device multiple wavelengths. So there was a kind of a unique aspect that I liked about it. What was your path from there through to uh, quantum research? Yeah, so after, after I finished Durham, I was looking for a, another big challenge, and I, I kind of knew that I wanted to change fields. Mm. The, uh, perhaps the irony for me was having been in that, that field that trying to do things that were good for the planet, I realized that a lot of the chemicals they use to make solar cells are actually toxic. And so I was looking for something that wasn't toxic, but something that was, you know, deeply stimulating and, and hard again, yeah? And so quantum physics kind of was the obvious thing, next step for me. Um, the skills I had were in making and realizing designing devices. And in Cambridge at the time, they were looking at fundamental effects in quantum devices and trying to figure out what they would be useful for. Why Australia? Ah, oh, so straight. That was an easy choice, actually. So when I was looking where to go after Cambridge, I was one of the things I recognised is I, I had had the opportunity to travel, and I had seen, I guess, family in Australia that recognised that it was a place of positivity. Um, I had family that lived in the U.S., and I saw in the U.S. that whilst it was positive, it was also quite competitive, in a way that I didn't feel was very collaborative. And in the U.K., I felt it was it was just um, I don't know, getting stale. A lot of people would be quite negative about new ideas. And so for me, I was looking for somewhere that had academic freedom and the ability to pursue new ideas in an ambitious way. And that was really, Australia was the obvious place. So one of your new ideas, which uh, not only earned you a paper in Nature, but also a place in the Guinness Book of Records, was uh, the one-atom transistor. Uh, what is it and, and why is it important to uh, quantum computing? So, so the, the idea of quantum computing really relies on trying to control nature at its smallest level. And so if you go into a solid state system, the smallest level is an atom. And so really the question we posed back in 2000 was, can you build a device where the functional element is an atom? And we came up with a kind of eight-point procedure about how you would actually make a device to do that. And it was really beyond the technology that existed at the time. So it was really kind of pulling things together and trying to figure out, could you take what existed and modify it to make this device? 
Um, and it took us probably about you know 10 years, 10 years to actually make that device. And at the end of the day, when we made it, it's a phenomenally exciting experience to invest something for, in something for so long and then it to come to fruition. Um, but it really then opened this pathway to try and encode information on a single atom, a particular electron spin on an atom that you could use for quantum computing. So that's the, the pathway that we're heading towards and now we're actually starting to use those states for you know, qubit operations, which are quantum bits, yeah. What is a is 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 that single atom uh, a qubit a quantum bit? Yeah, so we're actually encoding information on the electron or the nuclear spin of that atom, and so that's the the quantum bit. It's taking the electron spin, we put it in a magnetic field at low temperatures, and it either aligns with the field or against the field. That would be our essentially one and zero states of a classical bit, but in the quantum world, um, and we actually find with that spin, we can actually put it in a superposition of those two states, and so that's really where the power of quantum physics starts to come in. You said cold, but really, really cold, right? Really, really Minus cold. Minus 200 and something degrees yes, Celsius? Yes, it's 100 millikelvin, so almost to absolute zero of temperature. So it's very, very cold. And at the moment, you typically need those low temperatures to keep the qubit states separated and isolated. Um, if you heat things up, they mix, and then you can't get your definite ones and zeros. So you've got to get it as cold as you can. Um, typically, the colder you get it, the higher accuracy you can control it. So at the moment, pretty much all solid-state systems, except for diamond, are using very cold states, including the, the Google announcement you talked about earlier. Yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about that. Uh, the uh, claim by Google is that they've, uh, they've achieved uh, uh, quantum supremacy. Uh, IBM has question whether or not the calculation that uh, that they claim would have taken uh, uh, many years is is in fact that uh, that complicated uh, what sh what should we make of this oh, look I think it's a fabulous result um, we've all been watching for a number of years um, to see the tipping point at which we could actually prove experimentally that you know quantum states could outperform classical states for computing um, and so you know there's been a, a decade or, so, or more in some cases of people looking at can you control the world at that level can you create quantum states can you put information in and out of them and that's I think lots of platforms and different materials have done that now um, but then there was the next question actually is quantum computing real you know it does it really work mm. can you find a calculation where if you use quantum states you can do it faster than a classical computer could do and so one of the things I like about the uh, the result from Google is they, you know, several years ago, they said, this is the problem we're going to try and do. And so they were very open and honest about the type of problem so that, you know, that when they, you know, if they realised it or when they, when they realised it, that people wouldn't be able to say, actually, that wasn't the right choice of problem. So they set it up very nicely. This is what we're going to try and achieve. Um, and then very recently, as you say, last week, they've shown that they've done a calculation with their superconducting qubits, different to what we do in Australia, that would take minutes. Um, and I guess the, the discussion is how long would a classical computer take to do the same problem? And in their paper, they talked about 10,000 years. And I guess IBM's come back and said their, their calculation on a classical computer could take two days. Um, and so for me, either way you look at it, whether it's two days or 10,000 years, it's mm. still two minutes, yeah? So it's a significant result. And, you know, and I really applaud the team. It's great for the field. How does it change what you do? Oh, so for, for me, it's, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal because I now know, as an experimentalist, you know, you spend your life dedicated to a subject um, that's set up by theoreticians. And if yes. they're wrong, then your life has been wasted. Yeah, so for me, number one, you I'm delighted. Theory, <laughs> <laughs> I'm delighted. So, I, I, you know, our instincts has always been that this would be the case. So it's great to see that result. 
Um, I, the other reason why I'm delighted is I think um, you know every material platform has its positive and negatives. And one of the things that's kind of known about the superconducting system is they have what they call very short coherence times. It's difficult to keep them in the quantum states for a long time. Um, and it's hard for them to scale. So they, you know, it's kind of well accepted that those are the, the two kind of negatives of that platform technology. Um, and one of the reasons we've chosen silicon is that they have very long coherence times, orders of magnitude higher than the superconducting, and they're inherently scalable. So we're very excited about the result. For us, it means that we're on the right pathway and it's given us a little bit of energy to keep going down this, you know, what is a difficult field to be be a leader in. Mm. So tell, tell us about the pathway we're going down. Uh, how could quantum computing make life better? Uh, so this is, this is one of the things that's quite fascinating for me. So we've really, you know, over the last uh, 10 years, people have come up with all these different quantum algorithms and a lot of them are what we call mathematical ones where they're optimization problems or simulation problems where you know, it's very hard to articulate where they're going to come in. I think a lot of people have looked, you know, kind of beyond where is it likely to come in. So whether it's looking at um, simulating materials so that you can, for example, get better fertilizers by having better catalysts, that's one of the things a lot of people talk about, or understand how to do drug design. Again, that's another area. But those are things that we can still see are far away from where the actual practical hardware is nowadays. And so the, the fascinating thing for me is if you look back at the classical computing industry when it started, they had kind of technology coming out, whether it was calculators or hearing aids, using those original transistor devices that then turned into computing devices. And so you can actually plot how that industry evolved. For the quantum field at the moment, there are these theories that seem just a little too far away for our liking about all these algorithms that you can perform. And we're really trying to look for what are the near-term applications. Um, and it's kind of a little bit frustrating, again, as an experimentalist, because they're still too far for us. Mm. Um, the practical reality for me is we're actually using our quantum computer to help build itself. And that's something that is incredibly rewarding and I think it's quite unique in our approach. So we actually make the devices, because they're small, we can actually use conventional computing to mathematically model those devices. And then using that model, we can help predict where's the next place to put the next qubit. Right. And so that's a, you know, originally, you know, you talked about the, the founder of the field. A lot of people assume that Richard Feynman was the first person that really came up with it because he said, you know, if you want to understand a chaotic, you know, quantum system, you've got to use a quantum system to simulate it. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're using our system to help build itself. So it's go back, it goes back to his kind of ideas. Yes. Uh, and uh, there's also potential downsides, right? I mean, the, the cracking of encryption uh, causes all kinds of problems for those of us who uh, rely on 128-bit encryption to, uh, to do our internet banking. Uh, how worried should we be about that? Um, so, look, I think, you know, when, when any new technology comes along, you've, you've got to look at what are the unintended consequences. It's very hard to predict those, I'll be honest, as they're evolving. Um, one of the algorithms that's quite powerful is this encryption algorithm, but everybody realises that you need literally millions of qubits at this point with our theoretical understanding to do that. So it's a long way from where we're at, and um, already, as, you know, as soon as somebody comes up with a potential new technology, there are people looking at what, how can you stop that. So there's quantum hard encryption, which is a new theoretical field that's opening up. Um, and there's also the ability to encode information in quantum states to transmit securely. And so what we're finding is, you know, there are these algorithms out there, they're still too far from where the hardware is, but as we're building the hardware, we're learning along the way what it can do. And I think it's quite important to make sure that, you know, there's kind of policy frameworks around that as, as that technology grows. There's also a concern about uh, existential risk, uh, the notion that uh, that if we attain an artificial general intelligence that's smarter than us, then it will very quickly become 10 times smarter, 100 times smarter, 1,000 times smarter, and we'll struggle for 
control over that uh, that system and ultimately it's quite easy to think about it having particular functions which would be or goals that would be utterly incompatible with life as we know it uh, how worried should we be about that kind of uh, uh, singularity uh, causing uh, real threats to uh, to us as a species so I have to be honest, at the moment where I see the complexity of what we're doing and how hard it is, um, and so that seems a long way off. And so at the moment we're still looking at, you know, one of the calculations that was only done, you know, was done a few years back was can you factorise 15 into the numbers 3 and 5, yeah? And so, you know, a classical computer can do that incredibly easily. And so I think it's too soon to know where that's going to go, but I think the, uh, the reality is it's still a, a computer that is going to be uh, led and controlled by human beings and I can't see that's going to change for at least a couple of decades and like I say as, as the technology grows it will you know, become clearer what it can and can't do mm. but that's something at the moment I'm, I'm not worried about I'll be honest with you. Uh, you're not engaged in that uh, that sort of AI ethics conversation or uh, through, through your group at the moment? Not really. So I think there's a lot of people in artificial intelligence that are discussing it machine learning and we're certainly watching those conversations mm. and seeing what mm. happens. Um, but I think we're kind of behind that in the technology space for them at the moment. So we're waiting to see how that pans out and what lessons do we learn from that. So you think therefore it's feasible that if we do attain artificial general intelligence, which a lot of people think could well happen before 2100, that that could easily happen on a classical computer rather than on a quantum computer? So it's not, I have to it's not my field of speciality, so I wouldn't know. Yeah. I wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, so tell me more about how you work. How big is your, uh, your core team? Uh, so my core team's grown quite a bit, actually. So it's probably about 35 at the moment. Um, it's um, something that has grown because we've set up a company in the last couple of years. Um, and we've basically got the you know two two teams, one working on a very focused 10-qubit architecture, which we're calling a quantum integrated circuit. It's very much like the integrated circuit. Um, and then we've got a second team that's looking beyond that for error correction and scale-up. And so essentially it's all the same material platform, but the challenges are quite different. And so it's, it's got quite a big team to do that. How much of your time ends up being in sort of personnel management rather than uh, direct hands-on hands science now? Oh, so hands-on science, to be honest, I don't do at all anymore and I haven't done for a number of years. And so, you know, for me, it's the you know, getting the data out is the most exciting thing and discussing the data. And so a lot of my time will be spent making sure that, the, that no one is prevented from being uh, productive every day. And so we have huge numbers of high-tech equipment that are literally designed by us, built by us, and modified by us. So they're right at the edge of what we know how to do. Mm. And so keeping that running and getting data out optimally and making sure the data is clean and of high enough quality is probably where most of my time goes. In amongst that, um, so, so what I want to make sure is that everyone is productive and they're not waiting for things. So we have a no downtime policy, which is quite unusual in a university environment. No downtime. Anything goes down, we have to fix it straight away. And then we're constantly, every time a device comes through... There's no downtime for the machines, right? For the machines, yeah. No. <laughs> for the machines, yeah. Um, and then um, once the data comes out, it's really discussing that data in great detail with, with teams of different mm. expertise to understand it. And so the, you know, I guess my philosophy has always been, if you're being productive and you're getting great results, then you'll be a happy researcher. And so, so that's where most of my energy goes. And I think, you know, the people that are in my team, I'm incredibly proud of. You know, I've spent a long time choosing team players, people that like working together, uh, that recognise that, you know, they have unique contributions, but it's only going to be good if they can leverage it with the team. 
do you think of yourself as being naturally extroverted or, or introverted? Oh God, I would say I'm an introvert for sure. <laughs> so how do you go about getting those the, those people to do the the engagement with one another as somebody who's a temperamental intro, introvert? Oh, so I think just because I'm so passionate about what I do, and I you know I think all of them you know I think everybody wants to do good things in their life and they want to challenge themselves. So for me, I always want to take every individual and push them beyond their comfort zone. Um, and at the same time, I'm, I think I'm incredibly supportive of what they achieve. I know it's hard and, mm. you know, if, if it's hard and they do well at it, you know, I'm in there with them, recognising it all the way along the line. So, um, yeah, I don't know. So I, yeah, I'm, I genuinely believe in what we're doing. I do think it's, you know, very exciting. I think it's going to lead to great things. And, you know, and they see that. They see what comes through. And I think they recognise that we have leadership internationally. Lots of people are trying to chase us. So there's a, yeah, there's a momentum and energy mm. there. How do you get the balance between wanting people to be working on uh, the project that you've identified and giving them flexibility to work on their own projects? Yeah. I mean, Google has the sort of day a week do, do, doing your own stuff. Yeah, uh, do, you, yeah. do you pursue a policy like that? Are you more ad hoc? Uh, how do you get that balance right? Yeah, that's a, that is a great question because I think, you know, one of the things I realise is that people do need to have their own head and make their own mistakes or find out the things that motivate them. So what we tend to do is when we... Um, bring people into the team we have these kind of offsite days where we go away and we look at what you know we literally do kind of personality tests of what their strengths are what their weaknesses what what they would be happy doing and we figure out pretty quickly within the team these are the skills that we need and you can find out people like to do certain things and not other things yeah so number one we try and put them on projects where they're going to do the things they like um, but then in amongst that I try and figure out from them what do they see success for them means and I with each one of them I'll have a little plan of what things they want to achieve and we review that on a regular basis so so in in that respect if they're finding that the project's too hard for them or that wasn't what they thought then we will pivot and adapt to that um, but within that it's always the view of they've got to look at what is being what's making them successful so i don't let them off the hook that they can mm. completely mm. change constantly they've got to see you know they've got to actually demonstrate success and go through that hardness to realize that nothing is easy and nothing is free and so, yeah, so I do drive them quite hard. How do you allow them within that uh, hard driving environment to have some sp a safe space to fail, to say that a project isn't working oh, and, to, and to kill it? Because I encourage them all the time to challenge me, which they do. Um, and, you know, if they want to do a particular thing, then I'll give them space and time to do it. And I'll tell them, you know, if, if you want to go off and do this, you've got this amount of time, but you've got to get results. Right, right. And so, so, so the, I guess the key thing for me is... You know, I do believe that, certainly with PhD students in the team, that, you know, at the end of the day, they should be proud of what they've done and done the best they've done. And so if they help define what that is for them, then, it, you know, it's a question of keeping them to that. And if they veer off too far and I say, hey, you've spent three months doing this and it's not getting you this goal that you want, then it's a kind of hard conversation to have at some point. But I'm absolutely aware that they, they need that freedom. Um, because that's where they really learn, to be honest. And if they come up with ideas of their own, I'm very supportive of that and I want them to try it out as soon as possible so they can figure out what it's like to develop an idea and try it. You must see a lot of students coming forward. Uh, what do you think we could do better in terms of scientific education, both at the school level and the university level? Uh, so I've got, I've got lots of different ideas here, but I think um, I think one of the things I'm, I'm very keen about is making coding compulsory, I'll be honest with you, because... Um, 
in, in everything that we do in our labs, whether it's theoretical in the designs or analysis of data or the operation of machines, there's a huge amount of coding. And one of the things I think I've been very saddened by is I've, over the last year in particular, I've been out to lots of schools, in particular girls' schools, and realised that they don't do it at all. And so I will have you know undergraduates in their first and second year come to me wanting to do a project, and they will say, I've never done coding, and I'm never going to be able to catch up, and that's just not going to be part of my life. And I think, wow, at the age of 18, you've written off a mm. whole area which is actually only going to grow um, so for me I recognize that you know coding math and statistics are things that you know are just fundamental skills that it's worth having uh, it doesn't mean you have to be a mathematician or a statistician but if you have those skills it, it just opens the opportunities that you'll get in life and coding is another one so there's things like that I think we did need to make sure we get in the curricula somehow and don't miss them out how valuable is coding given the sort of fairly rapid rate at which languages are changing? I mean, I learned basic at, uh, at school. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. not sure it helped me very much as an economist when I was then programming in Stata. Uh, to, to what extent do you, do you see uh, those skills as being transferable across languages? Um, so, again, it all depends on what you end up doing. But I think a lot of um, the high-tech industries, if you there are certain things like Python, which are kind of generic codes, they will always change. But I think the basis of coding doesn't change. And it's, you know, if you, um, I think if you don't do it, particularly when you're young, then you see it as bigger than Ben-Hur to pick it up. Mm. Whereas if you've picked, if you've done some of it, and you even if you, you know, I don't know, use it to fly you know, robots or something, you know what I mean? So uh, drones, then that's something that you will understand how it's useful and why it's there and the mm -hmm. concept of it. So I think see, picking up things like exactly that drone technology and how you program drones would be a simple thing to do that could be put in the curricula that would get you past that, what it is to code. You can see it being used for something functional. And then later on in life, if you want to do it, you I think the barrier won't be so high. What do you program in? Uh, so to be honest, I program in Python mainly, yeah. So, but likewise, I think I was at an era where we didn't do a lot of programming. So, you know, so I've seen those different codes change throughout. Uh, in terms of uh, university curricula, uh, what do you think we could do better in terms of both how we train scientists, but also how we build scientific literacy among the, uh, the non-science students? Um, so I, I think one of the things I, I have realised over the last few years is that having industry placements would be fabulous. And certainly some universities are looking at that during the undergraduate years. And so that, you know, where is it going to be useful? So there's, there's this kind of conversation I hear a lot about, you know, industry's not very happy that we're not training people in the right way and university's saying we're training people with industry doesn't mm. want them. The only way to deal with that is to bring industries into universities and have them, students, at an, you know, year one, two and three, going out and doing placements. So that's something I would definitely change. I think in terms of scientific literacy to the non-scientists, it's not something I've thought about, I'll be honest with you. Um, I'd, I wouldn't know how to answer that. Well, I just remember Larry Summers saying in the context of the Harvard undergraduate curriculum that uh, Harvard had made a decision centuries ago that it would be an abomination to graduate uh, someone who knew nothing about Shakespeare, yet thought it was perfectly appropriate to graduate students who didn't know the difference between a genome and a phenome. Uh, so he was trying to, to build into the, the basic uh, cu curriculum some, some knowledge of science. Yeah. I don't, to be honest, I don't have a strong view on that. Yeah. So I know, um, certainly, I mean, in the UK, we would have specialised quite early in the scientific field and not taken anything else. And I've seen benefits from that in terms of um, the focus that you have on your career and knowing where you're going to go. Um, so I can see that's useful. But then I've also seen students from the US who, who get a much broader education. And then, so there's, yeah, I don't, don't really have a strong view. 
In terms of how you do your work, uh, do you have any particular life hacks that have, uh, have, have proven, proven useful? Are you a, a late riser, early riser? Uh, no, I t I've been an early riser for a number of years. So I do like to, I don't like traffic. That's probably one thing I should say. So I like to get to work way before the traffic comes up. But I also find that, you know, I like time where I, I'm by myself and can think. And so early in the morning is a mm. perfect time for that. Um, and then because I've got relatively young family still, I like to be home for dinner afterwards and, and spend time with the family in the evening. And so, yeah, so early, early rising. And I guess that probably started when I, when I had children and I realized I just had to work whenever I was awake. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a common story, isn't it? Yes, yes. Once they, they, they start waking you up at five o'clock and then <laughs> they're no longer waking up at five o'clock. <laughs> and you still are. Exactly. Uh, and uh, are there uh, particular sports that you uh, you, you, you follow and or as you uh, you do in order to stay uh, healthy? Yeah, well, look, I'd say I, I, when I was young, I was totally passionate about basketball, and, I, and certainly uh, probably my favourite times of basketball were in Cambridge because I played on a, a kind of pickup team of a lot of American postdocs that were in Cambridge on basketball scholarships, ironically. Um, so that I would play almost every day if I could get a game. Um, and so actually, one of the other positives about coming to Australia was I wanted to join the basketball teams over here. Excellent. Um, but I did find that it was um, in in the UK you could have women playing on men's teams but over here it wasn't so easy which I you know still quite surprised by um, and so when I arrived I didn't find it easy to find a team that was at the kind of level that I would have enjoyed at and so you know not totally professional but also not beginners and um, so I, I then turned to surfing for a while I tried to learn to surf I thought it was the quintessential Australian thing to do uh, figured out surfing and then I then I um, had my children and that's not it's not easy to surf when you've got young children um, but now I'm doing something called bar which is like a kind of Pilates or ballet class. It's a kind of core strength class. Mm. Um, and that's really good because it's uh, good for my posture. You know, I recognize that I can't ignore my health and I've got to, you know, make it part of my everyday life. You've uh, been referred to as somebody who's uh, famously good at uh, knuckling down and concentrating with uh, very short periods of, uh, of, of time to uh, focus. Uh, assuming you're not using modafinil, how do you manage to, uh, to, to get that degree of, of focus in the, in the windows that you have? Um, I don't know. I think I, I have this tr tremendous responsibility gene. I've got a list every day of things that I want to get done. Um, a lot of those things are where other people are relying on me. And, you know, I just don't have time to do anything but focus, to be honest. So I know I've got to get the job done. Any particular hacks that uh, you and uh, your husband Thomas use for uh, balancing work and family? Um, I think we communicate incredibly well together, which is great. But um, we both recognise that it's just chaotic. And, you know, that's life and get on with it and, and have fun, you know. So um, there are times I think when I'm travelling quite a bit and I'm quite exhausted and I'll, I'll have a chat with him and I'm just going off to a lecture or a meeting and he'll go, have fun. <laughs> and just, just that phrase makes me realise, oh, yeah, I'm having fun, even though I'm totally exhausted. You know, I'm actually going to have fun. Yes. So that's, you know, having a very positive attitude is great. And you've been fated with an extraordinary number of accolades, uh, Australian of the Year and AO, Eureka Prize, the L'Oreal UNESCO Award for Women in Science, Asia-Pacific Laureate. You're one of the youngest women elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Um, how do you regard such accolades? How do you uh, uh, not brush them off, take, take on the, uh, uh, the, the, the weight of them, but, but not allow the uh, fame to go to your head? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, to be honest, I feel incredibly uncomfortable most of the time um, 
with with awards and prizes, it's um, not something that I naturally enjoy. I'll be honest with you, um, but I have to admit, Australian of the Year was a fabulous experience because you know I'm passionately positive about Australia. I think it's a great place, and you know I guess not being born here, I feel it probably very deeply in a way that you know I was, I was when the national anthem's going, I will really emotionally feel it, and I look around at some of the Australians and they don't seem to feel it in the way that I do. Um, but I, you know, I think is there is there was certainly with that there was a responsibility to promote Australia internationally, which I absolutely love doing. It, it's not hard, honestly. People love Australians all over the world, and so that was that was great. Um, and, but even in in the country, I got to travel a lot and meet people and realise, you know, that you know, there's so many people out there that just want to make the world a better place. And so to get to meet those people and recognise that it transcended all, you know, no matter where I was in the country, whether it was young children all the way through to you know, old old age pensioners, it was fabulous. So, so for me, that was a wonderful experience, and I felt, given that uh, kind of opportunity, that I should make the most of uh, trying to make young Australians recognise what a great place they live in, really, because there's you know, a few places in the world that I think they would have such a great lifestyle and great opportunities. You're a role model for women in science. How do you uh, think we need to? go about encouraging more Australian women to take up scientific careers? Yeah, so this is really tough, you know. So last year I started with a particular viewpoint which changed over the year. Um, and, you know, I'm actually baffled as to how to make things better. So I started out at the beginning of the year thinking, you know, if I talked about it, then lots of young girls would, you know, see things they might not have seen before and it might help turn things around. And that might there might be an element of truth in that. But then I realised that the whole STEM discussion was actually negative for them. They were hearing it too much. They were, you know, getting bored with it. They felt a pressure from, you know, they described it as this is a different generational problem. It's a, it's a problem from previous generations. We don't see we have that problem. Um, and at some level, so it was overused and had a negative kickback in the very people that we were trying to change. And so I would say if people introduce me, don't introduce me as a female scientist, you know, just introduce me as who I am. Um, because as soon as you put the female in front of it, the young girls in the audience think, oh, here we go, another female we're going to get to see and hear about and everything's wonderful. Um, so, so there was that. But then at the same time, you know, I, I did honestly feel that the careers that are out there for young girls are much more diverse than they perhaps think. So I realised it was a question of educating them about if you have these skills, what kind of careers could you do? And if you don't have these skills, what careers are you cutting off? Mm. Um, and then with those careers that you might be cutting off by not choosing those skill sets, such as coding or maths or statistics, um, then are you happy with that choice now at such an early age? And so trying to say to them that there's huge opportunities in the future, don't limit your chances in life, was one thing I think I changed towards the end of the year. Um, but you know, still there's that question of, the work-life balance. How do young girls get into science? Um, what career are they going to have? How are they going to be able to have a family and a career? And it's just not so obvious in the sciences, in the sciences as it is in other areas like medicine, where people have worked out how to do that well. And so that's, I think, a challenge for the country. Is you know there are going to be more high-tech jobs, I believe, out there in the future. And how do we show that there are pathways to have a family and do well, and you know genuinely be very happy, which is the fortune that I've had. Yes, you sound, to put an economist's lens over the top of it, like you're thinking of it perhaps being more of a demand problem than a supply problem, and that perhaps we've uh, we've we've seen this simply as an issue of supply. We just have to uh, encourage uh, young young women to take on scientific careers, and uh, and all will be well. 
I think it's. I think whatever career they do, there's got to be the sense that they have that work-life balance that's suitable for them. Mm. Um, and in the in the sciences, it's just there's not as many obvious pathways out there. And so that's I think part of our challenge now is to show all the different kinds of careers you could have and and people that have done well and been happy in those careers. So there's a kind of career aspect to it that's kind of missing. I'll be honest with you at the moment. What do you think you can do about that? I don't know. Well, so I know over the last year we talked a lot about profiling women that have have you know had careers in certain areas and had and had families that you know where they've uh, you know had children and they felt very happy. Um, and that's something that a lot of groups are starting to do. So again, I think part of the challenge out there is there's lots of people trying to do lots of things and it's not coordinated. Mm. Um, and at an individual level, I guess the choice that I've made at the moment, simply because I'm trying to build a quantum computer, is to open the labs and to mentor young girls coming in from primary school all the way through. Um, by letting them come through, what I'm finding is that people we've in the past that through our labs have actually come through and done undergraduate degrees and then postgraduate degrees with us. And so it's really opening their eyes to that at an early, as early age as you can get. Now, what should the rest of us do about it? Gosh, I, I find ways of highlighting the careers of people. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's lots of uh, female scientists, in, even in the, phys in the physics community, that are out there that have done fabulously well. Um, but most young girls wouldn't know that. And I think even when I give lectures, I go out and I put up, you know, pictures of, you know, Nobel Prize winners like Albert Einstein, everybody knows who that is. Marie Curie, everybody knows who that is. If I put up people, you know, that are even very successful entrepreneurs in Australia, you know, the guys from Atlassian, Scott, or Mike Cannon-Brooks, they don't know them, yeah? So we're not um, publicising the success stories we've had. And in amongst that, we're not publicising the young female leaders that we've had that have had success stories. So somehow, you know, getting that out there, celebrating mm -hmm. them more would be a very positive thing to do, I think. Michelle, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Ah, uh, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think I've, I've had that question before, and I think it's really a question of, um, you know, work hard and know that success is up to you. It sounds very trite, but it's very true, you know. you Your life is what you make of it. And if you work hard um, and you do something you're passionate about, then good things will happen. Is there a scientific issue on which you've changed your view? I think when I was coming through school and university, I thought everything that I was learning was real and true. And then I, you know, when I went into research, I realised that we know so very little. And a lot of it is uh, our understanding at that point in time, and it isn't definitive. And so I think as a scientist, one of the things I've loved is that you're always building on knowledge, and the truth is only what you understand at that point in time to you. But fundamentally, I think science does have fundamental truths that you can build on. And, uh, yeah, so I think one of the, I, I guess, big surprises for me in Cambridge was there was a field that I was in um, where it basically went against everything I'd learned at school. And I remember thinking, wow, how can they teach us this at school? And then I come <laughs> to university, it's completely different. Um, and that field is still heavily debated now. So there are things we just don't understand. So I, I think in my life I've realised that we just know so very little. And you've spoken a couple of times about Einstein, and yet uh, all of this, uh, the field you work in, is uh, is, is something that Einstein uh, w w wouldn't have imagined. Yeah. I mean, I love, I have to admit, I love that. I love looking back through the history of science and how it's evolved as well. I don't get so much time to do it, but, you know, it's a very, if you're in a particular field and it's, you know, relatively new, 100 years is relatively new, yeah, and you can go back and look at all the the different theories and how they evolved, it's quite fascinating, honestly. And, and you know, the, the key thing I've learned from that is that new technologies allow you to see things in different ways. And every time you see something in a different way, it, 
you know, deepens your understanding and it questions everything you've known today. And that's, you know, the field that we're working in now. Everything we do is new. So it's great, constantly challenging everything I know. When are you most happy? Uh, this, is a, this is the honest truth, and people are going to think this is weird. Uh, number one, it would be with my family, somewhere with my family, typically just sitting around. Actually, on Sunday mornings in bed, they all jump on the bed and we all sit around and chat. That's probably my happiest. Um, but beyond that, on a personal level, um, just on my, on my own, sitting reading a physics paper. <laughs> in a cafe with lots what of noise around. Someone else has done, or reading reading one of your own pa papers. No, uh, no, uh, either either way. But typically, yeah, any physics paper that I'm reading, and so you know, having that time to deeply think about something. And I love cafes because I love watching the world go by, and you know, I can easily concentrate with this white noise around me. Mm. Um, so I, I do like that. Finally, Michelle, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Living an ethical life, gosh. Um, it, it, well, it would have to be my father and my husband. There you go. So my father would have taught me at a young age to take responsibility and do your best. And I think with my husband now, he's always he's actually taught me to trust myself. You know, so to um, you know go with your instincts and you know always be true to yourself. And so in such a way, I think we've all got inside us an inner compass about what's right and what's wrong. Is this the right thing to do? Is it, you know, there's an endless discussion, you know, things that happen every day in your life. And I think, you know, you've got to listen to that inner being about what's the right thing. Um, and that's a yeah, good piece of advice, I think. Michelle Simmons, quantum physicist, thank you so much for taking your time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback. So please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.